Hello and welcome to this very special interview with me, Bo Dade, and I am joined by Ben Habib, ex-MEP and uh, co-deputy leader of Reform UK. How are you, Ben? I'm very well, Bo. Thank you very much for having me on. No, no, my pleasure. So first of all, before we get into sort of some policy and all things reform, first thing to say is that you are actually standing in the Wellingborough by-election, so, um, so, uh, which will be uh, very soon. Uh, so tell me a bit about that. How, how's it going and uh, why is there a by-election in Wellingborough at all? Well, the reason there's a by-election is because Peter Bone, who many will know is to have been a, an ardent Brexiteer, Conservative Party MP, was found to have done things which uh, resulted in a disqualification, I think, for 35 days by memory. And um, that entitled... Um, the constituents of Wellingborough to do a callback, effectively to force a by-election. And as I understand it, Labour went about getting the requisite number of signatures to force a by-election. They got that number um, late last year again, I think I'm going by memory. And so a by-election was called in the first week of this year, I think, roughly in the first week of this year, the by-election was called. Um, and it's to take place on the 15th of February. It's an important by-election for Reform UK because this is a Brexit seat. Um, I think UKIP, which isn't a predecessor of Reform UK, but many will associate with Reform UK because Nigel was its leader back in 2015, came second here in 2015. Um, and they're naturally our kind of people because they're pro-Brexit. And I think it's going to be regarded as a kind of litmus test for whether uh, Reform UK can really pack a punch when it comes to an electoral event. All right. Can, can we say what Peter Bone actually did? Because I, I can't remember. I don't, I don't know if I ever knew exactly what, <laughs> what he did. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in what he did, to be frank. But the allegation is and parliamentary inquiry seems to support the allegation that he bullied um, a colleague of his and that he was sexually inappropriate with that same colleague. Um, But, you know, I've been in politics long enough now to to take everything I hear with a pinch of salt. So I'm certainly not going to be castigating Peter Bone or judging him. Um, Parliament reached its decision. He has had to step down. There's been a recall. There's a by-election. That's when I come in. No, fair enough. Fair enough. So how's it going there? Is it, 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 I have seen bits and bobs and I shall be going up there next weekend. So hopefully we'll meet you in person. But how's it going at the moment? Is it looking good? There's, yeah, so, I mean, it's really interesting. You know, if you look back at the two last by-elections that Reform UK fought, which are Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire, we took enough votes off the Conservative Party or we took enough votes to deny the Conservative Party uh, their seats. Both of those seats have been pretty significantly pro-Tory at the last election. I can't remember the exact figures, but big majorities were lost um, to the Labour Party. Uh, What the Labour Party didn't do at the last by-election was really convert any Conservative, previously Conservative Party voting members to the Labour cause. what they held was their own vote, but the Tory vote stayed at home, if you like. Right. And 
Uh, at the time of those by-elections, Reform UK was polling around 5% nationally. Mm-hmm. We're now polling 12% nationally. And if Labour repeats its performance in Wellingborough, in other words, kind of holds its own vote, but doesn't pull on Conservatives in the way that it needs to, to really pack uh, a, a clear electoral victory. And if Reform UK can energize the Brexiteer centre-right vote in Wellingborough to come out, not to stay at home and feel, uh, you know, irritated with everything, but to come out and vote, then I think it's game on. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's be positive. Let's, uh, you know, stay optimistic. Yeah. Why not? Um, I'm not I'm not even being optimistic. I'm just looking at the maths. Right. I think the, the mathematics suggests we're in with a really good shot here. Labour, by the way, have been Labour were the ones who put together the recall petition. They've championed it. They've got a really slick office in um, Wellingborough. Their candidate uh, is a lovely, smiley young lady who I think will appeal um, in her demeanour to many voters. But the point is, she's really supporting a manifesto, uh, a party which is worse in all directions than the Conservative Party. Um, it, 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 it's not pro-Brexit. It's not pro-British national interests, whatever they say. They're pro-EU. They operate through sort of global governance structures. They hold the people of this country in contempt. Mm. They would tax us, borrow and spend our economy into oblivion. So the the Conservative Party is bad as they are. Labour will be worse. But Jen is a very nice, friendly face on a terrible party. And what I've got to do, amongst many things I've got to achieve in Wellingborough, is to reveal the fact that Labour, you know, is a pretty wretched entity in itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I've 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 seen you on in the media at various times, and you seldom mince your words. You know, I would call them. You know, that it's so a lot of their actions or their policies, just like the Conservative Party, are uh, well, I'd say traitorous. You know, flooding deliberately. It seems to me flooding us with, you know, foreign an endless stream of foreign fifth columnists. That's how I would put it. I mean, it's a a crime of monumental proportions. But one of the things I want to ask you is, I guess, one of the most important things, one of the policies that is perhaps one of the most important issues of our age is immigration, both legal and illegal. And again, you've, I've seen you on this and you, you, uh, you're happy not to mince your words. Um, so first of all, then, if I could ask you about the illegal immigration, the, the, the small boats. Um, and uh, Richard Tice and the party have said that they were, you know, it's a, on the front page of the of the uh, website to have net zero migration and that they, they will stop the boats. I think I saw Richard very recently, a week or so ago, talking about turning the boats around in the channel, sending them straight back to France. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. uh, the party's policy and your thoughts and feelings on it? So Richard has a six-point plan to turn the boats back. I've got a one-point plan, which is you just physically stop them in the channel and you make them go back to France. Well, use the and Royal Navy... Don't... Use whatever force you need to use in order to get it done. What, 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 what is the most important job government has uh, to the people of this country? It's the protection of the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom and the protection of our borders. Our government, and in, indeed many Western democracies, it would seem, have forgotten what border control is. 
They seem to think you can walk across the border if you like, and then it's up to us to find a mechanism by which to deport you. And they're wrong. Mm. The only way to the only way to control borders is to control borders mm -hmm. to prevent people from coming in in the first place. You try doing this in the vast majority of countries. You know, for example, my dad's Pakistani. If you try to cross from Pakistan into India, or an Indian try to cross from India into Pakistan, there wouldn't be any warnings. There wouldn't be any negotiation. You would be shot. That's mm -hmm. it, and that's border control. When Belarus tried to export a whole load of, uh, it was a manufactured um, refugee crisis, if you like, that they created for Poland. They tried, they flew uh, people in from Syria and North Africa, and they tried to march them across the Belarusian border into Poland. Poland put up a metal fence and parked its army behind it. And guess what? No one got into Poland. Mm. So they didn't have to worry about deportation. They actually stopped the problem before it became a problem. That's what border control is. And we've become so weak, so politically inept, that we can't recognize that we have to stop them from coming into the country in the first place. And let's just put one thing straight out there. They are not refugees. They are not fleeing destitution, um, personal harm, um, a threat to their life. They're coming from France, where they are cared for by the French, and where their human rights are assured. So they have no right to be coming across that channel. And yes, France may bemoan the fact that they've got many more refugees entered their country from across Italy, or illegal migrants entered their country from Italy, which is largely where they come in when they, well, Italy, Western Balkans and Greece, when they come to France. But that's not our problem. That's a French mm. problem. And it's a French problem because France is part of the Schengen zone. And if they close their own territorial borders, they wouldn't enter France. And I bet you, Bo, if we stopped them in the channel and the French stopped them at their borders, they'd stop going into Italy because they'd realize they can't make it all the way across. That's why border control is so critical. And governments across the, as I say, Western democracies seem to have forgotten that. Mm. Yeah, no, uh, no good point, I suppose, you know, what is a nation without border control? Um, you aren't a nation. You aren't. Let me just define a nation because mm. it, it's a really good point you make. Um, it is our nation state that is being attacked. And our nation state comprises a common language, a common culture, a shared history, a shared set of values, uh, a, a, a settled social construct, uh, a unified constitution, a unified political union. That's what a nation state is, if I were to sum it up. Every single aspect of what I've just described is being challenged at the moment. Um, our language is being decolonized, and in that process, they're both, both dumbing down the English language, ruining it in my view, but also um, uh, subliminally communicating to you that there's something wrong with the, with, with the English language because of our history. The expression, the decolonization of the English language is prejudices the English language. So our language is being hijacked. Our history is being hijacked. We're constantly told, not that our forefathers um, were good people who abolished the slave trade and spent the rest of the 19th century policing the high seas at vast cost, both human and monetary, to shut down the slave trade. We're told that we are all our riches de depended on the slave trade. We're told that 
um, if we were to leave the ECHR, human rights in this country would evaporate. The fact is the United Kingdom established human rights at the zenith of its power, its imperial power, at a time when it wasn't under any pressure to do it. So we should be very proud of our history. We shouldn't allow people like Welby and indeed King Charles and other commentators question our history. We should be proud of it. Winston Churchill was accused by St. Paul's Cathedral of being a white supremacist. This is St. Paul's Cathedral accusing Winston Churchill. You say they're trying to trash our national heroes. They, and in doing all of this, they're attacking the nation state. But the biggest and most uh, virulent way of undermining the nation state is, of course, to have open borders. Because if you have rampant immigration like we've had, we've had more immigrants come to the United Kingdom in the last 25 years than in all of history, it becomes impossible to hold that social settled construct that I described together. And what we've now got is multiculturalism, not in any positive sense where different cultures have come together, absorbed each other's best values, and then moved forward in a harmonious way. What we've got is different cultures living in different silos in the United Kingdom, often in antipathy to each other, keeping themselves to themselves, and we are becoming a divided society. And that's breaking the nation state. The United Kingdom, as a nation state, is being assaulted in every direction. And if you want one hard bit of evidence, other than immigration, that our nation state is being attacked, it is the Irish Sea border that now exists between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We are the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and yet our government is so weak, so inept, so prepared to give up its own people, give up its nationhood, that it's put a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable state of affairs, really, to, to find that our, our borders are just uh, being, being ignored. I mean, because it's, it's something even broader than that in the sense that it's, there's laws in place. So it's the law, the rule of law is being ignored. And if the rule of law is, is held in contempt or being ignored, then you're a hair's breadth away from just complete anarchy or chaos or something. I mean, it's, yeah, it well, seems I mean, like I, just we, a we, dereliction we, of duty from the Conservatives. It absolutely is. And Suella Braverman was absolutely right in Washington a few months ago when she said that the United Kingdom is facing an existential threat. We're absolutely mm. facing an existential threat. Mm. And if people think that we'll bounce back, this is hyperbole, this is just scaremongering, nonsense. Let me just give you some stats. National debt at a post-World War II high. Taxes at a post-World War II high. GDP growth flatlining uh, or declining on a per capita basis when you take into account the growing population as a result of immigration. Public services, completely broken. NHS, double the number of people waiting, double the waiting period. Um, housing, unable to cope. A serious issue with our roads, with potholes. Our schools, incapable of coping. And, um, and then, of course, on top of that, what you've got is this incredibly damaging economic, um, what I call economic emasculation. Uh, move towards net zero, which we'll never achieve, by the way. The globe will never get to net zero emissions. That's garbage. Mm. We're never going to get there. But in the pursuit of getting there by 2050, we're going to economically destroy ourselves. Um, and we are on the edge of a precipice. If we're not already over the precipice, we're certainly on the edge of it economically, culturally, socially, um, 
constitutionally, politically, we are on a precipice. And we've been put there by a series of governments, starting with Tony Blair, ending up with this Tory government, that has basically, as you say, Bo, been in gross dereliction of its primary duty to the British people. I wonder if you can help me, Ben, with a couple of arguments that always get made. We're told that yeah. mass immigration, uncapped mass immigration, is good for GDP. Uh, we're told that the NHS well, cannot survive, that our labour force cannot survive without mass immigration. That seems to me sort of just palpable nonsense. Obviously, that's not true. It is palpable nonsense. We've got six million people. Sorry, this is a point I meant to make earlier and I, 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 I forgot. We've got six million people in this country, that's 20% of the workforce, surviving to a greater or less, a lesser extent on universal credit. Two million of those people aren't even looking for a job. One and a half million are looking for a job but can't get it. And the remainder are working part-time and uh, surviving on the state. They all need to get back into work full-time at full tilt. And the reason they're not doing it is because we've become a nation of dependency, not aspiration. We urgently, one of our top policies in Reform UK is to raise the threshold on income tax from £12,500 to £20,000 per annum. And that's vital to take people out of the tax net so that it pays to work. If it pays to work, people will go back to work. They will work. And if they work and they can keep more of their legitimately earned money, they will be inspired to work harder. And if you work harder, you create a positive spiral of growth in the economy. We also champion the cutting of taxes on business, which has gone completely over the top. If businesses are thriving and they grow, you're going to attract more investment into the UK and businesses grow. So if you have a workforce that's re-energized and aspiring and businesses that's re-energized and aspiring, you get the whole economic organism moving forward positively. You do not do that with immigration. Immigration has the opposite effect. Mm. Immigration undercuts wages, makes it very difficult for those six million people on universal credit to actually earn a decent wage because cheap imported labor continues to undercut them. The immigration coming in is a burden on the NHS. They all need to be uh, you know, housed, um, medically treated. They all have to use our roads. They, you know, the burden on the infrastructure is massive. It is an economic fallacy that only suits the largest corporations that immigration is somehow good. And what we're doing, Bo, is we're a first world country, but we're moving to a third world economic model, which is based on cheap labor. We haven't got it ourselves, so we import it. And we are destroying ourselves in the process. Mm -hmm. Richard Tice has talked about how he thinks the Home Office and by extension, uh, Border Force, and, and the police and the RNLI, but the, 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 the Home Office is unfit for purpose. Um, well, and the, the entire government's unfit for purpose. Well, certainly, right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's the civil service as well as the, the politicians in Westminster. But the, the No, civil I just want to come in on the civil service. I want to talk Please to Richard do. about the civil service. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I think we're letting the Tories off when we say the civil service are up against us. Sure, let them be up against you. I've had lots of, you know, I run a company. I've often had people who report to me um, not doing what I wish them to do. But then you have to get a grip of the problem. And it's the Conservatives' fault 
that they haven't got a grip after 14 years of the civil service. And I'll tell you, Bo, why they haven't got a grip of the civil service. It's because they are a divided party themselves. If you happen to be Pretty Patel as Home Secretary and you want to do good things to protect the country from immigration, the civil service can frustrate you in the hope that when you're removed as minister, they'll get one of those wet, one-nation, damp, squib, completely useless members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party in charge who then won't challenge them. When Labour come to power, if they come to power, you will see there'll be no problems with the civil service because Labour will be acting in a unified manner across its ministerial roles. Conservatives can't get a grip of the civil service because it's like squabbling parents. There are too many different factions within the Conservative Party and the civil service knows how to play one parent off against another. That's why they can't manage the civil service. And by the way, contrary to all the promises made by the Conservative government, when they came to office in 2010, there were 490,000 thousand people employed in the civil service. They're now 590,000 people. They've added to the problem. I have no sympathy for the Conservative government, Lord Frost, Boris Johnson, anyone else who bemoans the fact that they couldn't do what they wished to do because they were frustrated by their subordinates. You're the boss. Get a grip of your subordinates. Right. So in the case of the Home Office, do you think, um, let, let's imagine uh, reform could had enough MPs to form a, an actual government. Do you think it would be, oh, it would be just that you need a very, very strong minister who would grab that department by the throat and, f and make it do, make it fulfil the policies? Or that there would need to be maybe a whole new department, Richard Tyson's talked about that, a, a whole new department um, um, uh, uh, and, and employ a whole new tranche of people um, to, to enforce the, the border policy. What's your feelings on so that? The, so, so, the, so the two questions there, I think, because the first question is the border policy. So in terms of enforcing our borders, if the Royal Navy and Border Force refuse to do their job, which appears to be the case, I would recruit special forces to take on that job. And the, 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 the Bleeding Heart Open Border Brigade say, well, how do you stop boats in the channel? It's very easy to stop boats in the channel. You need a well-trained force on rapidly moving boats, which are robust and armed and are prepared to take action at the border to prevent people coming into our territory. Rishi Sunak clearly hasn't appreciated the problem because he keeps talking about how unfair illegal migration is on those who legally enter the country. He's missing the point. Mm. It's not about how unfair it is that illegal migrants are getting ahead of the queue. That's not what's unfair. What's unfair is that they're coming into our country at all mm. without our permission, and they are a threat to our national security. That's the problem with illegal migration. The so, social fabric and the burden on infrastructure and all the undermining of our workforce, that's not illegal migration. That comes from legal migration, all of those impacts. The illegal migration is a direct threat to our security and just has to stop. So you could then maybe, are you saying that you could take the question away from the Home Office in Thailand, hand the problem over to the Department of Defence? And you, you know, you, uh, uh, you put a Navy frigate in the channel or the SBS, get the SBS on dinghies to intercept these small boats yeah. or something. I mean, I, it may not necessarily be the SBS, but a well-trained right. force that will actually do it. You right. know, Someone. the Marines, whoever. Right. And, you, okay. and they will do what they're told. What, what's the primary duty of the armed forces is to protect the territorial integrity of the country. Go and do your job. Right. No, fair and enough. we wouldn't Good. have any truck with anyone. They do their jobs or they get fired. 
Um, so to, to move on slightly then to legal immigration, because of course the, the numbers yeah. when it comes to legal immigration dwarf the, the small boats crossing the channels, these dinghies. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so there's all sorts of, uh, quite often you hear, uh, you hear people in the Tory government or in the Labour or the Lib Dems or the Greens, and they sound like they're being tough about illegal immigration. And in fact, if you listen carefully, they're saying, let's create more legal safe routes for legal immigration. And again, I think they're missing the point. I think they're missing the feeling of the nation, that they see the very the heart point. and soul of every town yeah. up and down these islands transformed by legal immigration. And that the numbers, hundreds of thousands a year, every year, year on year. And any Over discussion of it being capped in any way is shot down and you're, you're called a, a racist and a bigot and all sorts of things for wanting any sort of cap on it. So what's, what's your feelings? What's the party's feelings and your feelings on the problem so, of legal immigration? Before, before we discuss legal immigration, I just want to I just want to make one thing clear. They talk about net migration, the government. They never talk about the gross numbers coming in, the total number coming in. Last year, it was 775,000 net. It was about 1.2 or 1.3 million gross. That's okay. crazy, isn't so it, Ben? Isn't that unprecedented in all of our history? Over the last three years, 5% of the British population has changed. Over the last three years, 5% of the population. 5%. Get your head around that. We cannot sustain this. It is going to, as I mentioned, it's going to destroy the nation state. Um, it's already, you know, tearing at the fabric of what was the United Kingdom. It just has to stop. And, um, and legal migration is the laziest. Uh, so the, I mean, it's partly, it's partly to do with the way government measures its own success. It talks about GDP. Of course, GDP will grow if you have lots of people coming in. It's a bit like a Ponzi scheme. If lots of people come in and they keep spending and earning, it looks like GDP is going up. But actually GDP per capita or GDP per hour work is going down. We are getting poorer as a nation. And we know that because we see national debt at historic highs, taxation at historic highs. You can't squeeze this pip anymore. The UK can't sustain this economic model of mass migration, holding up GDP in the hope that the exchequer can get, get enough money to continue the ridiculous sums that it is spending. It, it, this, this equation is unsustainable. We've got to stop mass migration. We've got to get British people back into work by cutting the burden of tax on them, by preventing them from being undercut by cheap imported labor, and also by making life cheaper and more cost-effective for British citizens by ditching this incredibly expensive net zero policy, which is a burden on, our, uh, on every individual's pocket, and more importantly, in some respects, has created a, a national security issue because the UK, which could have been energy independent, is now energy dependent on other countries, many of whom we cannot naturally rely on to be our allies, including France. I don't count them as an ally. I mm. count the French as hostile to British interests. No, absolutely. Oh, 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 I couldn't agree with you more on that point. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, go back to slightly or, 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 or meld what we're talking about here with what we were talking about before about the Conservatives and, and your fight at the by-election and th this idea yeah. of, uh, and I've, I've heard you talk uh, about this before, uh, about the, the Tory party, the parliamentary Conservative party sort of needs to or thoroughly deserves to be destroyed, annihilated, wiped out. 
Um, they, they, they deserve nothing less. And, and so yeah. what I wanted to ask you about specifically, because this is one of the criticisms, the general criticisms I see about Reform UK, is the concern, the worry that at some point um, Reform would or be prepared to sort of fold itself into or capitulate to the toys in some sense, the way the Brexit party did for Boris and that sort of thing. And so I wanted to let you speak about how, no, Reform UK now at this point in history is genuinely implacably committed to the electoral destruction of, of the Conservative Party. Is that correct? I was very reluctant to join Reform UK for fear that Amongst other things, there are other reasons why I was reluctant to join. This is open, Richard. I've spoken about this in Richard's presence in public. Uh, I was reluctant to join in part because I feared a capitulation against the Tories. I did not want to be part of anything that would stand down against the Conservative Party, deprive the people of this country, having marched them up to the top of a hill, promising them something new, and then capitulating. I didn't want to be part of anything like that. And I also recognise, as clearly you do, both that the Conservative Parliamentary Party, as distinct from the party itself, I haven't got an issue with the membership, but the Conservative Parliamentary Party is not, um, it, 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 it should be obliterated. There's no other word for it. Even, even those on my side of the debate, you know, who we might regard as proper Conservatives, why are they still members of the Conservative Party? If they're genuinely proper Conservatives... They should have left. They should have put the national interest first and they should have left the Conservative Party. They haven't. They've stayed loyal to that tribe when that tribe is doing so much damage to the United Kingdom. So I have no truck with them. And I got a commitment from Richard that there would be no deals with the Conservative Party. And it wasn't until I got that commitment from Richard that I was prepared to join Reform UK. Good, good stuff. I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, I would not have joined Reform if I wasn't, if I hadn't sort of, um, you know, come to terms with it within myself that I was convinced that that wouldn't happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I very much hope that anyone out there that has that concern, uh, words from you and from Richard and from Dr. Ball and others that say that sort of thing over and over again. Um, I think that's, I'll that's go one step. Point. I'll go one step. I'll go one step further, Bo. I used to hold out the hope that the genuine conservatives in the Conservative Parliamentary Party may leave and set up something new and become a genuinely conservative party, or join Reform UK, or do something imaginative. I, I don't even. I, it's not that I don't hope for that. I don't seek that anymore. I don't want it. We are Reform UK. If they want to join us in any shape or form, they can get in line with everyone else. Great. No, it's a very, very hard line. I love it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't really accept anything less personally. Um, so one of the next things, sort of moving on ever so slightly from that, but still sort of talking about the Conservatives. Um, I suppose you would agree, it's kind of obvious to say, that one of the hardest things Reform UK is up against, and I'd like just your general thoughts and feelings on this, is that stranglehold that the two main parties have, particularly in people's minds, the, 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 the perception in most voters' minds that they, it's a wasted vote if you don't vote for one of, if you don't vote Tory or Labour, that it's a waste in some way. And that, well, that, it's definitely a wa wasted vote if you vote for, vote for either of them, because right, you know you're going to get the same old rubbish, true. aren't right. you? The actual <laughs> yeah. opposite is true. It's wasted if you do vote yeah. for one of those. 
Um, yeah. And so I feel like it's 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 one of the mountains reform has to uh, has to summit. Is I don't to- I don't see it I don't see it as a mountain. I used to see it as a mountain. I don't see. It. Sorry, forgive me, but no, I please. used to see it as a mountain. First past the post used to be a real imposition. I think. Um, I think that's changing. I think people aren't recognizing how rapidly the sands have changed and are changing. How triggered the nation is now. I'm getting a feeling that we are more angry. That silent majority to which we often refer. I think is more, it's, it's not apathetic. It is now really angry and it's more angry than it was in 2016 or 2019. And I think we're going to see some really odd results coming out of elections going forward. Unpredictable kind of results. Well, I've, I of course very much hope so. So, I mean, let's talk, um, let's talk, uh, very seriously now about, cause we're polling, uh, you know, between 10, 11, sometimes as much as 12%. Um, it, who knows when the actual next general election is going to be, whether it's as late as maybe November this year or whether Rishi will call it earlier. But assuming the polling doesn't change massively in that time, assuming we go into a general election with the polling looking about the same as it, it does now, um, you know, realistically, you know, painfully realistically, we might not get a single seat, right? Um, so my question to you is, obviously, I hope that's not the case. I hope we get plenty. I hope I am returned for Swindon South. Um, uh, the, so do I. Uh, thank <laughs> you. Um, so my question is really, uh, in the longer term, Reform UK is a project over multiple general elections. Can you talk to me a bit about sort of the vision at the top of the party, uh, about sort of the, the plan for not just this election, but the next one? Okay, so first of all, just to reiterate, I'm not convinced we won't win seats. I think people are saying 12%. We, we were 5% in the polls three months ago, Bo. Right, yeah, yeah. We're 12% now. There is something happening in this country. People are realizing that we're facing a really serious threat and that the Conservative Party is not up to the job. Labour's not recruiting new voters. Labour's kind of holding its vote, and the Tory party's voters have so far stayed at home. If those voters come out and they don't vote for the Conservative Party, but they vote for Reform UK, and if we can pull, as we should, on some Labour voters, because just think about our policies, they actually promote the working and middle classes much more Imagine. than anyone else in this country. You know, exactly. So if we can pull on some Labour voters, and we get the small C conservatives coming out to vote, not staying at home. As I say, I think you're going to see some really interesting results, even under this first past the post system. Everyone keeps telling me, including the executive team in Reform UK, Ben, um, this is general election staff. People go become tribal. They vote the way they did. This is not like the European elections where there may be a protest vote. You know, this is different. And I disagree. I think, I think people are getting to the point or have got to the point where they are wanting genuine protection for the country and they've realised they're not getting it from the Labour Party or the Conservative Party. Right, right, absolutely. And I think one of the, a very, again, sort of psychologically for the, the general voter, I think one of the important things is that reform is perceived as, comes across as sort of 
a, a genuine, you know, sort of legitimate bona fide alternative that it's not just a, a, a pro- right, and it's not just a protest vote. That's um, the point. We're not because we're, we're going to be standing party. in every yeah. constituency, right? Um, we've got yeah. some some serious people standing all over the place, and so yeah. but you know, I just wanted uh, sort of tee you up, <laughs> basically, say a few words, a few words about that. That it's not just sort of a throwaway vanity it's project. Not. That's what I sometimes hear, it's and not. I just don't feel that. I don't think that's true. It's not. It's it's not a vanity. It's certainly not a vanity project. I want to be out of politics. I'm angry that I'm in politics. Absolutely. Right. Right. This, yeah. I'm mm. pissed off mm. that I'm having to be in politics because these people in Westminster should do their job. The majority of the nation, the vast majority of the nation, should be able to go about its daily business without worrying about an existential threat to the damn country. Mm. For God's sake, we mm. should be just taking that for granted that mm. those who govern us are going to make sure our military is perfectly capable, our borders are secure, British workers are looked after, our NHS works, our, our public services work. Um, you know, we should just take that for granted, but we can't anymore. These people are so hopeless, so I'm angry that I'm in politics. And um, I, I'm, not, I'm not in it to protest, I'm in it to change it. Mm. Mm. No, uh, that's why I like you, Ben, and I think a lot of people do warm to you because, you know, actual... Emotion, like you, you know, genuinely angry. Sometimes a lot of the politicians, um, they're some. Sometimes they're accused of being sort of too, too emotionless or too detached or something. But you know, uh, it's great for me to hear you speak like that because I feel the same. I'm pissed off, right? Yeah, I'm pissed it's, off. It's, it's I'm more pissed than off. that. It's, it's yeah. in fact, it's more than that. It's an understatement. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. There's something. I mean, I can't deep, say. Deep I can't say. Gut. Right. I can't say in public right. what, I, what, what my mind, mm. you know, the words, the expletives that my mind would bring mm. forward are unrepeatable in public. I'm really, really very, very, very upset mm. with what these people have done to our great country. Right, yeah. So I would need to ask you a bit about Mr. Farage, yeah. because this comes up all the time when you talk to people about reform or you make videos or reform, and it always comes up, what's Nigel doing? Um, now. There's a certain section of um, sort of diehard tribal Tory people who seem to be harboring this, for me, seems like a, a, a pipe dream, that he's going to join the Conservative Party and, and within Never. a few years be their leader and lead them Never. to a whole new renaissance in Parliament. Um, from what Not he happening. actually says, um, that's absurd. At, at party conference, I was at party, the last party conference and, you know, he was laughing out loud at the, the idea. However, when he was in the jungle, he was specifically asked that, and he was very non-committal and vague. He just said, who knows? Now, I've been told that that was a deliberate, he was sort of trolling the Tories by saying such a thing. So, again, can you tell me what you know, your thoughts and feelings on what Nigel's got in mind or what's going to happen with the whole Nigel aspect? I don't want to sidestep the question, but really it's Nigel you need to Fair interview enough. and ask him that question. Um, but my take on it is Nigel is a fantastic politician. He's a fantastic communicator. He's able to take very complex issues, distill them down into bite-sized chunks of information and convey them in a way that 90% of our political class can't. And so he is a terrific asset to any party that has him. 
I, I don't see him ever joining the Conservative Party, at least the Conservative Party as it is at the moment. I just can't see, not in a month of Sundays. There are fundamental problems with the Conservative Party that go beyond just the parliamentary. And the reason the parliamentary party is broken is because CCHQ is broken. The whole recruitment process is broken. They don't know how to recruit proper people into being proper conservatives into being MPs. So I just don't see that changing in a hurry. Um, and whether or not he joins Reform UK in a more active role, that remains to be seen. Nigel is like that very beautiful lady at the bar whom all the guys want to chat up. But he's not going to say yes in a hurry to anyone. <laughs> right, fair enough. Because at the moment he's honorary president. I believe that's his title, isn't it? Yeah, honorary president. Yeah. So of uh, course, or president, I think. Or, or, yeah. or president, president. Sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, if if he wanted to stand somewhere, of course, Richard and the senior leadership team will confirm this for me. Of would course. would allow him to do that at sort of a, a, a oh, drop of a hat. I would be delighted. Right. Of right. course, we'd be delighted. Yeah. Um, so um, so well. So fingers crossed that he'll do that at, at this next election then, I guess. Yeah. Um, but if he doesn't, Bo, if he does, you know, great if he, Nigel joins us. But as I mentioned, there's something happening in the nation. It's happening anyway. If, if Reform UK is to succeed, it can't be about one man. It has to be about a movement. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. got to be about a depth and breadth of people who come together under a single plan, which is, in my view, seeing off the existential threat that the United Kingdom faces, making policies for our national interest, for the people's interest. That's how I see Reform UK's job. When people say, what is Reform UK? I say, this may sound daft to you, but our fundamental principle that differentiates us from the other parties is that we wish to make policies for the British national interest. And you'd think that's a given for the Conservatives and the Labour Party, but it ain't. Mm. You know, they're seeing everything through the prism of the EU the G7, the WHO, what they, the great and good with whom they rub shoulders at the World Economic Forum. You know, Starmer said he'd rather be in Davos than be in Westminster. That absolutely tells you where his mind is. What an um, incredible thing to say, really. I mean, an incredible thing to say. The man's not fit to be prime minister. Um, yeah, so one last thing on Nigel before I move on. I absolutely yeah. agree with you. That uh, the, the movement, the party should be or is bigger than one man. Um, absolutely agree with you in principle. But once again, it's the, the, the psychology of your average voter, of your average person, your average human being, is that you can't help but put a lot of emphasis on the leader, one the person. man, the one yeah. person, the, the, great, the great, right? Um, yeah. The captain, the centre yeah. forward, the try scorer, the goal mm. kicker. Mm. You know, mm. you just want that guy. But let's just see what happens over the next few months, Bo. You know, okay. let's just see what happens. I, as, I, as I say, I think there are political sands shifting at a speed that people aren't appreciating. And that'll in itself present itself to Nigel. It'll become clearer and clearer to Nigel what's happening politically. And uh, I mean, he's very politically astute. It's not for me to, you know, second guess the way he sees the landscape. But mm. um, uh, I'm sure he is looking very carefully at what's going on. Okay, you mentioned uh, the WEF a moment ago. I'd like to switch yeah. over and ask you a couple of questions just about that. Uh, once again, uh, Mr. Tyus has been extremely clear. I had the privilege of interviewing him a while ago, and I asked him straightforwardly your feelings on the WEF. Um, and he said, you know, unequivocally, we'll have no truck with them. I, I, I yeah. sort of almost got him basically to repeat it. He said, no, you know, we will not bend to them. We will not be 
their their creature, their puppy in any way, shape or form, not not one tiny iota. Um, so I want to get your feelings on that and, you know, the feelings and the policy within the party on, uh, yeah. on, on WEF. So it's axiomatic, in my view, that big business should not be in bed with the leading politicians of the world. I think that's, an, that's a rule that should never be broken. And the vast majority of our parliamentary standards are set up to prevent big business from being able to influence government, right? You know, if MPs are paid cash to ask questions, they get deep disbarred. If MPs are lobbying, like Cameron was for Greensill, it's frowned upon. Had Cameron been in office then, he would have been driven out of it, and so on. Yet, with the World Economic Forum, somehow it's become legitimate for the richest people in the world to meet the most powerful political leaders in the world behind closed doors and rub shoulders with each other and exchange notes and make plans without anyone knowing what the hell they're up to. And we know they're doing deals. We know we're do they're doing deals because we have the evidence of it. For example, Nick Clegg left office and joined Facebook, now called Meta. Osborne left office and became a director of BlackRock, one of the biggest fund managers in the world. Um, David Cameron, we've talked about him, left office and became an advocate for Greensill, a company that then went bust, having taken hundreds of millions in loans from the government. Um, and yet he's still back in office. There is something sick at Davos. There's something sick about the World Economic Forum. It's, it's giving legitimacy to what we all know to be incredibly bad practice, if not illegitimate. The coming together of big money and big power, that's not a good recipe. That's an awful recipe for uh, the way the Western democracies are governed. And so I'm completely with Richard. We would have no truck with the World Economic Forum. And if we ever had the privilege of forming a government, we would not send any ministers to the World Economic Forum. Right. Right, because, of course, it's sort of probably, I imagine, almost as old as civilization itself, <laughs> or as old as, let's say, as old as democracy itself, that elected officials and big business will in some way have some sort of connection with each other. You know, it's not illegal to go to lunch with people, for example. But then there's, as you say, what's going on at Davos, which seems to me orders of magnitude more sinister than people having lunch. Right. Yeah, uh, the, well, big, there's, I mean, there's the some, business, sort of nex some sort of nefarious nexus going on there. Am I going too far to be in your estimation by saying something like that? No, no, I think it's I think it's awful what goes on at Davos. They, to the extent that I mean, the government needs to know what business is thinking. It needs to be in touch with the city and with manufacturing sector, with the high tech sector, with the fintech sector. It needs to know how these sectors are moving in order to be able to govern us properly. But there should be form, formalized methods of communication, trade bodies making formal representations of the government on policy. That's all fine. But I've got a real issue with big money meeting big power behind closed doors, which is what the World Economic Forum is. Mm -hmm. OK, one thing um, we have to uh, begin to wrap it up, if that's OK. I, again, really appreciate your time, but I've got a few more quick things there. Uh, pick a yeah. few points I'd like to ask you about, just get your feelings on. Um, one of the things was um, the, the, the lockdowns we had and yeah. uh, the, the, um, 
the inquiry that's currently still going on about what happened during that period. Seems to me the inquiry is, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a, really a whitewash, but it seems to be focusing largely on why didn't they do things quicker and harder? Well, it seems to me Absolutely. the yeah. opposite seem, should be uh, uh, under the, uh, uh, it should be looked Microscope. At. Yeah, under Absolutely. the microscope. That it, there was yeah. some sort of giant expansion of government power that they put us under a type of house arrest for a few years. Again, that's sort of an unprecedented thing in, in all history, as far as I know. Um, that there's a giant overreach there and that our, our liberties, our very liberties were trampled on. Um, again, what's I mean, your the ultimate. It was the ultimate. That? Well, Bo, it was the ultimate. You know, Tony Blair introduced the nanny state. Boris Johnson, through lockdowns, took it to wet nurse level. It was the ultimate in state intervention. It was the ultimate in the stripping of us of our civil liberties. And Boris Johnson used to make a big thing about, well, this is like World War II. You know, we all have to pull together and get through this like World War II. Well, let me just, let me just tell you the difference between World War II and COVID. In World War II, people gave up their lives to save our civil liberties. In COVID, we gave up our civil liberties to save our lives. It's the antithesis of World War II. It's the opposite. And it's symptomatic of the collapsing political will and good governance that this country has. We all knew at the beginning of the pandemic, before lockdown started, that it was a disease that largely affected, very largely affected only the very elderly and those who had vulnerable preconditions. It did not affect healthy young people. The vast majority of healthy young people were unimpacted by it. And yet, we destroyed our economy on the back of lockdowns. We created a lot of the problems we're now grappling with. And I think part of the reason geopolitics is so uh, seemingly unstable at the moment, also, by the way, has its roots in lockdowns. Um, people haven't joined the dots completely, but we emerged from lockdowns with the global economy really quite broken, with manufacturing facilities that hadn't operated properly for a couple of years, with shipping completely broken because all the ships were in the wrong places and hadn't been uh, properly maintained, containers, uh, the refining businesses for oil having been shut down and having to restart. You know, everything was denuded. We had no vision of how we were going to unlock having locked the world economy down. Oil spikes, oil prices spiked when we came out of lockdown because we simply couldn't produce enough refined, you know, uh, oil for our purposes. And it was the spike in the oil prices that enriched Putin, that gave him the opportunity to attack Ukraine. I mean, all these things are linked, mm. you know, and um, we should never have locked down. It, there was a perfectly good, sensible proposition put forward by 4,000 leading epidemiologists across the globe called the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for the uh, isolation of the vulnerable and the elderly. At their discretion, in my, in my view, no one should be forced to isolate. Um, but the government decided to lock the, lock the, lock the country down. And it's a, it's a policy that Western democracies, including our government, borrowed from China, a totalitarian regime. Lockdowns had their birth in China. I mean, that we in the West could adopt a Chinese policy so in such a wholesale way. And Jeremy Hunt, you know, for whom I have, well, he's one of the, you know, one nation lot of people in parliament. Jeremy Hunt spoke, I don't know if you remember this, Bo, but during lockdowns, he spoke ad admiringly of the Chinese, mm. the way that they had so rigorously 
nailed people into their own flats. And he's our chancellor. Mm, mm, sickening. No, absolutely sickening. So if reform were to, to, to be in power, um, the, there wouldn't be, for, if there were any future pandemics, the idea of lockdowns or mandates would be off the table. We've got to move away from this principle of dependency and we've got to move back. We, lockdowns infantilize the population. We took away decision-making powers from people. We said, you're not big enough, bold enough, intelligent enough to decide whether or not you want to self-isolate. We're going to take that decision-making power away from you, whether to make the decision for you. We've got to stop that. People have to be trusted and respected enough to make their own decisions themselves. If people want to stay at home because they're frightened about a virus, stay at home. Hmm. Those of us who didn't want to stay at home should be perfectly at liberty, literally at liberty, to come out. And not mandated vaccines. Absolutely not. My body, my control. Great. Well, now I, mean, I, the ask, whole you that, yeah. I ask you that yeah. specifically, Ben, because I, I, uh, I may be accused of uh, uh, pitching you a, a few softballs in this interview, but I've got to, get, I've got to do one hard question yeah. here. Yeah. There is a clip of Richard Tyson, and Dr. David Ball talking during the height, yeah. uh, to give them some credit, during the height of the panic. Uh, and they do talk about that at least NHS staff should accept a mandated jab. And lots of people that are detractors of reform or are looking to undermine them or looking for any sort of slam dunk against reform, they, they do point to that clip. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd like if you could well, address I mean, that if, and, and yeah, how sure. the policy I mean, I may can... have changed since then. Yeah, I'm not sure that was ever their policy. Um, uh, Richard and David say that the clip was taken out of context and that's not what their position is, that vaccinations, they've always held that uh, vaccinations to be of a voluntary nature. If people want to get vaccinated, you know, go ahead and, and get vaccinated. David uh, and Richard have said to me repeatedly that clearly they weren't vaccinations. What we're talking about was not vaccinations. Had they been vaccinations, um, those who had been vaccinated wouldn't worry about those of us who weren't. Right. But the whole... Right. Are you with me? Yeah, of course. The whole, yeah. the, whole, the, the, the whole premise of forcing everyone to be vaccinated was the fear that actually vaccination, this didn't work as a vaccination. It didn't work. <laughs> and those in power clearly knew it because they kept saying, well, those of you who aren't vaccinated are going to be a danger to those who are vaccinated. And I never understood that. Either, either this is a damn vaccination and it works, in which case, if you're vaccinated, leave me alone. I don't want to be vaccinated. Or it's not a vaccination, in which case, why the hell should anyone have it? Mm. Are, are you with, you know, yeah. philosophically and logically, it was a fundamentally flawed argument. And um, so as far as vaccinations are concerned, uh, absolutely, it's my body, my temple, hands off my body. If I want to die, if I want to do something highly risky and die in the process, that's my prerogative. Mm. Mm. No, I, I completely agree. The argument, they tried to make the argument that, well, there's such a thing as a breakthrough. You can have a, a vaccination, but there's a small chance that the vaccination doesn't take. And I, I think that's true, but in a very, very, very tiny number, that's a very, who very cares, tiny right? number. Uh, but, but if it's doing cares? it on a, on a mass scale, that the vaccination isn't working, then it isn't working. It's not a vaccination then. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yes. I mean, even if it was just getting through, I didn't care. If you're so panicked that you won't go to a pub unless you know that everyone else in the pub is vaccinated. Don't go to the pub. Mm. Stay at home. Mm. 
And as far as I'm concerned, you're, you're timid to the point of being a pointless part of society. <laughs> Stay at home. <laughs> you know, I, 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 and from that, I obviously exclude those people who are vulnerable and elderly and so on, who have a legitimate reason to be concerned. From them, you know, for them, obviously they are sim- my sympathy with them. But if you're a perfectly healthy 35-year-old fit guy and you panic because you're going into a pub and other people there aren't vaccinated, well, you know, you've got to examine, your, you've got to examine the way you think. Okay, so one, uh, if two, two quick last quick things then. One, um, I wonder what your feelings are on this. And I don't, I'm not sure I've heard you speak specifically about this. Uh, I'm not sure I know really the party's position on it. So it's, I'm, I'm genuinely interested. I wonder what you'll say. Um, this idea that Tony Blair, or during the Blair years, brought in all sorts of um, reforms, <laughs> all sorts of new things, new ways of doing government. And one of the things, personally, this is just, just my feelings, um, is that the, the Supreme Court, the idea that we have yeah. a Supreme Court and that they can sort of force the government or, or at least, um, or, or at least um, sort of make sure yeah, that the government isn't they able to... They kind of make to, new laws, yeah. Right. And so the idea that, you know, perhaps we leave human rights, various sorts of human rights legislation, that the Supreme Court stands in the way of that, or at least thwarts the government in various ways. I'm of the feeling um, that the Supreme Court can just be abolished, done away with. What do you think to that? Well, I think we do need a supreme judicial body, but the supreme judicial body should not be making laws. um, And it should be the supreme judicial body. So what I mean is there is is an accusation. Is that not the, the commons? It is, but I think that the Supreme Court is guilty of making laws on the hoof and interpreting political events. There have been a few cases like the proroguing of Parliament, like the Article 50 process, my own action against the government over Article 6 of the Acts of Union being set aside by the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, these are some very significant cases that were heard by the Supreme Court where judgments, in my view, were wrong and weird, and the Supreme Court was stepping outside the realms of what you would expect it to be doing, which is looking narrowly at the legal point and deciding whether under British law, um, you know, under English law, that um, uh, th- that particular argument prevails or not. And so there's that aspect. But the other aspect on the ECHR, I think, is a fundamental one, which is that the Supreme Court should be our supreme judicial body. And what we've done is make the European Court of Human Rights the more senior body in the United Kingdom. We don't need to leave the European Convention of Human Rights, by the way, in order to take control of our own destiny. What we need to do is remove the European Court of Human Rights as the supreme judicial body for human rights in the UK. And the European Court of Human Rights, by the way, habitually makes laws. It makes laws all the time. It's only guided, as we know, by a convention. Every time it passes a law, uh, every time it passes an adjudication, which is a new adjudication on a new subject, it has effectively made new law. And it is, so we have a, a foreign court, which is not, has no democratic accountability in the United Kingdom, making laws that are imposed on the United Kingdom. That in itself, Bo, is a breach of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which requires 
that we are governed by a democratically elected government. But if you have a foreign court imposing its rulings on you, that's an abuse of human rights. The fact that the European Court of Human Rights is the supreme most body to determine human rights issues in the United Kingdom is itself a breach of British citizens' human rights. Get that argument out there. People haven't picked up on it. And the, and the government can sort out the European Court of Human Rights like that by removing them as a supreme judicial body. We don't have to leave the convention. Again, for all those bleeding heart liberals who claim that the United Kingdom will be devoid of human rights if we left the ECHR. No, we wouldn't. Mm. We wouldn't. We don't need to leave the ECHR. We need to remove the Court of Human Rights from being superior to our Supreme Court. But I agree with you. We should have stuck with the law lords, which is what we had before. Mm. Everything done by Blair. If you want a guiding principle in life, anything Blair did, reverse it, and you're probably making the right decision. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the <laughs> argument for me is that uh, when was the uh, our Supreme Court? It was two thousand one or something like that? The early, very early two thousands. It was brought in, wasn't it? We seem to have done fairly well. Our sense of jurisprudence, our sense of what our law should be, was fine for centuries and centuries before that. So it just I mean, seems the completely strength. unnecessary. It seems completely unnecessary to me. Our law, our law was partly the reason why we had such a terrific empire. Mm. Not that we went about the world subjugating people. It was because we exported our way of thinking, including our law. And the vast majority of the world still trades under British law, mm. under our law, common law. Mm. And it's because it's so far superior to European law. And we've been infected with European law after 40 years of being a member of the EU. And we need to eject all of it. Kemi Badenoch absolutely shirked the opportunity to get rid of those 4,800 regulations. She should have got rid of the bloody lot. Mm. And we would, have, we would have been utterly fine. She claimed there was a legislative vacuum. There would have been a legislative vacuum if she got rid of them. There wouldn't have been. In this country, everything is permitted unless it's expressly prohibited. She could have got rid of those 4,800 laws. We would have all got up the next morning and we've gone about our daily legitimate business without any impediments. And we haven't got the courage to run the country for the British national interest. And that's where I'd started this discussion. Mm, yeah. No, just one more example of a, sort of a grotesque uh, dereliction of duty from the Tory party. But OK, Ben, you've, uh, thank you very much for your time. I'll draw it to a close there. I really, really appreciate your time. It's been a fascinating discussion. And um, thank you. hopefully I'll, I'll meet you in person soon up in Wellingborough. And um, yeah, it would be great to have campaign. you back sometime on, yeah. on later seaters. Yeah. Look forward to that. Thank you very much, Bo. Thank you. Thank you.